back in January, you guys remember January? Nine months ago? Uh, back in January, we started a journey together through what we were calling the best sermon ever. Uh, I've, I've tried to make it very clear when I say that I'm not referring to any one of my sermons, but to the best sermon ever, that is the Sermon on the Mount, the sermon preached by Jesus and recorded for us in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. So if you have your Bibles, please open up this morning to Matthew chapter 7. So we're going to look one more time at the Sermon on the Mount today. Uh, the sermon is the most well-known collection of teachings of Jesus. It contains the heart of his message as to how he wants his people to live. Everyone who claims the name of Christ and says they're a follower of Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount is the manifesto, it is the marching orders, it is what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And since it is so important, we've taken our time going through this. Um, We took about a one-month break after Easter, but really since January, we've been in this text. 27 messages, if you're counting, exclusively trying to understand these three chapters. What does Jesus want us to do? How does he want us to live? What is the Christian life all about? That was our goal. And I hope that I've done a decent job of explaining what these chapters are about. I hope that that we all understand the Sermon on the Mount at least a little bit better than we did back when we started in January. Uh, But if that is all that has happened, then I have not done my job. If all we have done in these 27 weeks together is merely understood what Jesus says a little bit more, if that's all we've done, then we haven't succeeded. Uh, Because the point of the study of Scripture is not merely to understand what it says, but to obey what it says. And that's the final point that Jesus makes as he concludes his sermon. So that's the final point I'm going to try to make today as we conclude our series of sermons. The kids already sang it for us, but I'm going to read it for us now. It's Matthew chapter 7. Verses 24 through 29. Jesus concludes and says, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the wind blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the wind blew and beat against the house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. This is really a pretty simple passage, a simple uh, illustration, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time explaining what it means so we all get it. There's two guys, right? They're each building a house. The first man is a wise man, and Jesus explains why he's wise is because he built his house on a solid rock foundation. Pretty obvious, right? You want to build a house, you want to build it with a good foundation. So that when the storms come, when the rains fall, when the floods come, the winds blow, it does not fall over because it's built on a rock. So the guy's wise. He built a house on the rock. The second guy is a fool. And literally, the Greek word that's translated fool is the word moron. 
Okay? That's where we get the word. It's a Greek word, and it means fool. It's moron. So this guy's a moron. And when he builds the house, he builds it on sand, which is moronic. Because we build a house, we build a house on sand, then the storms come, the rains fall, the floods come up, the, the wind blows, and the house falls, of course, because he didn't build the house on a firm foundation. That's the illustration. And, and obviously, nobody wants to be the moron. You know, all of us, we, we live in houses, and, 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 and your house has a foundation because you're not a moron. Because when you build a house, you have the time and the energy and trouble of building a house or buying a house that someone else has built. You want it to be a house that's going to stand firm and not crumble at the first thunderstorm. And so when we build houses in everyday life, we build them with a foundation because we don't want to be morons. And Jesus says, now, it's possible to build your life in such a way that you're a moron. And how does, what, what is it? What is it that makes someone wise or a fool? Look again how he describes the wise men in verse 24. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And a fool, verse 26. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the, hand, on the sand. So the difference. What's the difference between the wise man and the moron? They both hear the words of Jesus. They both hear them. One of them does them. The wise man does them. The fool hears the words but doesn't do them. So that means for us, right here, right now, even after spending nine months trying to understand the Sermon on the Mount and hear the words of Jesus, um, we could still be morons. We could still be the foolish man. We still have that opportunity. I mean, I, I'm sure if I had given you a pretest before we started in like January and said, okay, tell me what you know about the Sermon on the Mount. And then now I'll give you the same test. Tell me what you know about the Sermon on the Mount. I'm pretty sure that all of us would have good results. We'd be able to say, okay, I know more now. I understand more about the Sermon on the Mount than I did before. I know what Jesus means here. I understand this passage. I get it. But even if you scored incredibly high on your, on your test and were able to articulate exactly what the Sermon on the Mount means, you could still walk out of here today a moron, a fool. Because hearing the words of Jesus is not the point. The point is doing the words of Jesus. Now, I don't want to be a moron. You don't want to be a moron. I don't want us to be morons. And so what I want to do today is spend most of our time helping us to do the words of Jesus. So we're going to do something different. I don't think I've ever done anything like this before on a Sunday morning. It's going to be more of a workshop at this point than a typical sermon. Uh, I'm not going to teach you more stuff because we don't need to learn more stuff. We need to take the stuff that we've learned and we need to make a plan and put it into action. To help us do that, I've put a worksheet in your bulletin. It's a double-sided checklist. I want you to pull that out. I want you to get your writing utensil handy as well. 
This is different from your typical note-taking outlines. There are no blanks for you to fill in. They're just check boxes for you to check as you feel need to do that. Uh, what I did to create this this week is I went back through all of the sermons that I had preached for this series, went back through the whole Sermon on the Mount, studied it, and drew out the main points and applications that I try to communicate over the course of this series. So what you have here in your hand is a distillation of the main points and applications of the last nine months of sermons. And what I want us to do is to look at this together today and say, as we have heard all of these things, are there particular things that the Holy Spirit is impressing upon me that I need to, to do? You know, moving beyond simply understanding what it says to say, now what do I need to do? So here's the, here's the method that we're going to, to, to do today together. Uh, I'm going to pray again right now. I'm going to pray and ask the Holy Spirit to be active in our midst and in our hearts, convicting us where we need to be convicted individually. Okay, because this is a lot of stuff. And not all of us are in the same place or need, need to be doing the same thing. So I want to pray for the Holy Spirit to be working in our hearts, in, in each of you individually. Then, I'm going to go through each of these commands briefly, very briefly, because if I went through them exhaustively, we would sit here for another nine months. Okay? So we've already been down that road, but I want to go through these briefly just to remind us what, what is it that Jesus has said in the Sermon on the Mount. And what I want you to do is as we go over each command, honestly be asking God in your own heart, is, this something that I, is there something I need to do about this? You know, Holy Spirit, are you particularly convicting me about this? Is this something that you want me to take action on? And if it is, then with your pencil, I just want you to check that box. Okay? Now, as a caveat... I understand that all of us fall short in every way, and so you could go through this whole exercise and simply check every box. That's not going to be helpful, so don't do that. Okay, we understand that you're humble. That's great. But we want this to be helpful, so I want us to listen to the Spirit and say, you know, is there something in particular? So is there you know, one or two, a handful of things that you feel in your life right now God is impressing on you that you need to obey in this area? And check those boxes. And then what we'll do is we get through the whole thing, is at the end then we'll go through the action plan, and I'll try to help you create a, a, a real plan that's simple that you can then use to do these things, and then it's on you, okay, to go and to do. So that's what we're going to do today. So grab your worksheet. We begin with prayer. Holy Spirit, we believe in you, and we believe that one of your functions is to convict us of sin. That's not what we like as much as your other functions of providing comfort and, uh, and guidance, but we need it just as much. So please, right now, in do the miracle of, of taking the Word of God and applying it in a hundred different ways into our hearts right now, that we would see our sin, we would see what you're calling us to, 
going to be able to know what we need to do. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We begin. Make this your prayer. Make this your statement. As I prayerfully consider the Sermon on the Mount, I am particularly convicted that I need to do the following things that Jesus says. So as we go through this, what is the Holy Spirit laying on your heart? For reference, I've listed all these under the sermon titles and scripture references of the actual sermons. So if, if something intrigues you, you know, if, you know what, what was that again? What did Dan say about that? You can feel free to download the sermons or ask for copies from the guys in the sound booth in the back as well. Uh, we begin where Jesus begins. Do you need to be poor in spirit? Do you need to be poor in spirit? Give this one a little more time. We've got to start here. Because we've got to get this or everything else makes no sense. The whole point of being a Christian the, 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 is being poor in spirit. It, it's not, so you could get this list and you could interpret this wrongly and say, Dan's giving me a list of things I need to do to get to heaven. And if I do all these things or I do 80% of these things, then I'll be good enough and I can just take this and I can give it to God you know, at the gates and they'll say, okay, well, you did that. Okay, good, now you're in. This is not a performance list. Right? It's not do these things and then God will accept you. The whole point of entering the kingdom, it begins, Jesus says, his first words in the sermon, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So the first thing as we enter into this process is to say, am I poor in spirit? Do I need to be humbled in spirit? Am I still coming to God with my list of accomplishments and saying, I've done these things. Look at me. You should welcome me. You should accept me because I've accomplished so much. Or have you come to God poor in spirit? and said, I have nothing. All of my accomplishments are worthless. I, I, I'm a sinner. I can't save myself. Have you humbled yourself before God? Is that the thing that he's convicting you of? Do you need to be poor in spirit? Do you need to mourn over the brokenness of this world? Do you need to be meek? Do you need to hunger and thirst for righteousness, not casually living a cultural Christian life, but hungering and thirsting, longing to be righteous like Jesus. Do you need to be merciful? Do you need to be pure in heart? Is God calling you to be a peacemaker instead of a conflict starter? Do you need to rejoice when others persecute you for Jesus' sake? Or are you resenting your suffering? What's the Holy Spirit putting on your heart? In Matthew 5, 13 through 16, Jesus gives his mission for his people, calling us to be salt and light. And that means being noticeably different from the world standing out in a distinctively Christian way. Do you need to be different from the world? Are you blending in too much? Are you doing everything exactly the same as those who aren't Christians? Is there no difference between you and non-Christians? Do you need to be different from the world? As salt, we're supposed to stop the decay of society, to be a, a force you know, retarding the advancement of sin 
and destruction in society. Are you, are you doing that? Or it, is the Spirit convicting you that you need to be more active in taking a stand against evil? As the light of the world, we're supposed to illuminate the darkness and show people how great it is to follow Jesus. Are you shining? Do you need to shine? In Matthew five seventeen through 20, Jesus talks about obedience to the law, lawlessness or obedience. And one of the tendencies that we can have when we understand the gospel of grace is to think, now I don't have to obey. It's not important because I've been forgiven. Are you using grace as an excuse for your sin? Do you need to take sin seriously? Do you desire to keep God's commands? Jesus wants us to keep God's commands. Do you desire that? In Matthew 5.20, he addresses the opposite error of legalism and thinking that obedience to outward commands is all that matters. Is that you? Have you fallen into that trap? Is the Spirit convicting you that you need to repent of legalism from this mere outward show of obedience to religious rules? Has your heart been transformed? From the inside out, have you, have you fallen in love with Christ and desire to obey His commands? Do you need your heart transformed through faith in Jesus? In Matthew 5.21, Jesus begins to explain what it looks like to follow the commands of God, and he starts with anger and murder. And so he says, do not murder. I don't want to skip that. Do not murder. Are you contemplating thoughts of suicide? Are you considering abortion? Are you harboring dreams and, and ideas of hurting another person? Don't. Feel the conviction of the Spirit. Repent of those things. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He talks about anger. And he says, are, are you even angry? Are you harboring anger and contempt towards another person? Do, do you call people names? Are you despising another do you feel the conviction of the Spirit? Do you need to repent? Is there a person you need to go and be reconciled with? Not just stop being angry, but actually be reconciled. And I, there is a blank there. I did leave one blank for us. Who's the person? In Matthew 5, 27, Jesus continues and explains that loving other people means not committing adultery. If the uh, Ashley Madison computer hacking scandal teaches us anything, it's that more people than you thought are interested in adultery. Are you considering adultery? Are you committing adultery? Do you need to confess an affair? Are you lusting? Are you enslaved to pornography? TV shows or books? Do you need to repent of that? What God calls us to is to look at every person, not lustly, but look at every person 
as a human being made in the image of God, are you objectifying other people? Or do you see them the way Christ sees them? He continues in Matthew 5.31 and talks about divorce. And if we're going to do what Jesus says, it means that we don't get divorces just because we want one. Just because it seems like the easiest option. Divorce is only to be used in the most serious of circumstances. So are you considering divorce? Hear the words of Jesus. He teaches too that Divorce is not something you automatically do, even if you do have permission biblically to do it. So is the Spirit convicting you to seek reconciliation, to even offer forgiveness to a spouse? Though you may be allowed to divorce. The third point there is is worth, again, if you're confused on this, listening to the whole sermon, because this is a confusing topic. But there are times when divorce is the right choice. And it may be that if it's the most genuine, loving thing to do with biblical warrants, that divorce is the thing that you should do. Is that where the Spirit's convicting you? Because of our culture, I'll just say, that's a dangerous decision to make on your own. Talk about that with other Christians, with your pastoral leadership. But be sensitive to the leading of the Spirit. In Matthew 5.33, Jesus talks about oaths and our words, and he says you need to make every word you say as trustworthy as a promise. When you say yes, it means yes. When you say no, it means no. Is the Spirit convicting you to be more trustworthy? And some specifics that we got out of that. Do you break your word just because things get hard? Your word counts only until it gets difficult and then you will change your mind? Don't do that. Do you make commitments and then don't keep them because you forgot that you said yes? Is Jesus convicting you that you need to keep a date book? Do you break your word because you overcommit and promise to do more than you can possibly do? Is Jesus saying to you, you need to say no? to more things. Matthew 5.38, he teaches us to stop stop keeping score, to turn the other cheek. When people hurt you and do evil against you and violate you, are you responding with evil and retaliation back? Or are you finding creative ways to turn the other cheek and and thwart them non-violently? Do you need to do that? He says, go the extra mile. Are you doing only the bare minimum that's required of you? Or are you willing, in love, to do more than you need to, to show the other person genuine love? He says, give. When others ask for things, just give to them with no strings attached. Do you need to give? Open your hands. In Matthew 5, 43, he teaches us the extent of the law of love. And he says, we need to love those who love us. And maybe the Spirit's convicting you there. Maybe you don't love people who love you. Maybe you don't love your family or your neighbors. 
Many people do. Many people stop there. But Jesus said, don't stop there. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Are there enemies that you need to start praying for? Matthew 5, 48, Jesus says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And we saw that that's the goal. The goal, are you pursuing that goal or are you content where you're at? Do you desire to be like Jesus? Or are you okay just being a little better than your spouse or your neighbor? Let's pray again. Take a, take a breather. Spirit, um, Help us, encourage us, remind us of your love for us. Do not let us get overwhelmed by our failures, but do let us face honestly our need to obey. Show us what we need to do. Amen. Chapter 6, Jesus points out the danger of hypocrisy. Sometimes we do good just to be noticed. Do you need to change? Are you doing good just so that people will praise you for what you have done? Are there good things that you need to do in secret and not tell anybody? Like generosity. Matthew 6, Jesus says, Give to the poor because you love God and other people. Are you giving conspicuously so that people will see that you are generous? Are you giving? Do you love people? Do you need to stop giving to the poor because you're trying to impress people and start giving to the poor because you love them? Jesus even pointed out that sometimes we give to feel good about ourselves. Do you need to give in such a way that your right hand doesn't know what your left hand's doing? To give in such a way that you don't even think about the fact that you're giving? Need to repent. Do you need to repent of being impressed with yourself and your generosity? In Matthew six, Jesus talks about Matthew six uh, five. Jesus talks about prayer and our relationship with God, and he warns us: don't fake a relationship with God to impress other people. Don't. Don't use your prayer time and your church attendance and your carrying a Bible and all the various things that you might do to impress other people and pretend you have a better relationship with God than you do. You need to be honest about your relationship with God. It says don't be mechanical either. Don't pray in such a way that you think if I get these words right and say the right things in the right way, then Christ will uh, hear what I'm saying and give me what I want. Do you need to stop treating God like a vending machine? And have a real relationship? Do you need to begin praying like a child who has a real relationship with a loving father? Do you pray? Matthew 6, 14, Jesus says, forgive. Do you need to forgive someone who has sinned against you? Matthew 6.16, Jesus reminds us that we should be fasting. Do you need to periodically fast in order to seek God more intensely in prayer? Is that a part of your life? 
We talked about it. Have you done it? But don't fast in order to impress me or other people or prove that you're super spiritual. Do you need to repent of your fasting because you've done it the wrong way? Matthew 6, 16, Jesus speaks of money and he reminds us that we acquire heavenly treasure, eternal treasure, by giving away our earthly treasure now to help those who are in need. Are you acquiring heavenly treasure? Do you need to repent of storing up treasure for yourself now and begin to give away to others? And the guidelines were give away whatever you want to have forever and keep only what you truly need for your calling. Are those guidelines you need to put in place in your life? Matthew 6, 25, Jesus speaks of anxiety. And he tells us quite simply, don't worry. Do you need to stop worrying? Do you need to seek God's kingdom first and then trust that he will provide for your needs? In Matthew 7, Jesus says, judge not. Judge not. Don't pass a verdict on someone else that they are worse than you. Do you need to step down off your high horse and stop thinking that you're better than other people? Matthew 7, again, Jesus speaks on how to deal with others. Do you need to see your own sin and repent of it before you go correcting other people? Is that a problem for you? You know, it's correcting first and thinking that you're faultless. When you correct others, are you doing it gently? Do you need to be more gentle in your correction? Are you forcing your correction on people who will not receive it? Are you casting your pearls before swine? You just back off and pray? Have you asked God to make them change? Are you approaching change through prayer? Matthew 7, 7, Jesus says, Ask and you shall receive. And the point is that the main thing we should be asking for is righteousness, to be like Christ. Does your prayer life reflect that desire? Are you asking for holiness more than your own personal happiness? And do you believe that God only gives His children good things? Will you receive anything from His hand and trust that He's a loving Father who gives good things to His children? Matthew 7, 12, Jesus sums it all up with the golden rule. Do you need to love other people as much as you love yourself? Do you need to love other people the way they want to be loved, not the way you think they should be loved, but how they receive love? Do you need to take some initiative in doing good? Stop being the Levite who walks down the road and sees the guy beaten and says, well, I didn't do that but instead be the Samaritan who sees the guy in trouble and says, I need to help. Is there a person you need to help? Are you selectively applying the golden rule, not just, uh, just, just to the ones that are easy? Do you need to apply the golden rule now more broadly to everyone, not just those who don't inconvenience you? And at the end, one of the most important the most important, Jesus sums up and says, enter by the narrow gates. As we began, so we end. Have you admitted that you're a sinner? 
And have you submitted your whole life to Jesus Christ, to his lordship? This is how you become a Christian. Don't try to do anything else on this list if you haven't done this. Have you come to him as a sinner, humbled yourself and said, I, I, am, I need forgiveness and I want to follow you? Have you entered the narrow gate? And finally, Jesus warns about wolves, Matthew seven fifteen. Are there teachers that you need to evaluate by their words and their actions? Are there false teachers you need to stop following? Are there books you need to throw away? Are there shows you need to stop watching? Are there tweets you need to stop retweeting? Are there teachers that you need to say, this is a false teacher, I am done? Let me pray again. We're not done. Father, we've gone through this list briefly, I'm sure, but this is brutal. And so I pray again that you'd be working right now to highlight one or two things in our lives that are obviously at the surface and say, if I'm going to follow Jesus, I have to do this. And help us now as we seek to apply that we would have a clear plan of action and that as we leave here today, we would do something to put into practice the words that you've said and not be foolish builders, but wise. Amen. As you look on your worksheet, you see the very bottom, a little rectangle that talks about an action plan. So by now you should have some of these boxes checked. I hope that the Spirit has laid some things on your heart. So what do we do with that? Because even still, you, you, right now, you could still walk out of here a moron. And I say that in love. Because we could still just hear it. All we've done so far is hear and feel bad. But we need to move from here into a place of action and obedience. So what do we do? Here's, here's a basic outline. And this is similar to other things that I've said before. It's nothing new. It's nothing fancy. But it's solid. So if you've been convicted of anything in particular, what you need to do, first of all, is repent. Repent of that sin. You've already identified it, so that step one is just asking for forgiveness. Being poor in spirit. This is the part of the Lord's Prayer where we say, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. It's part of the Christian life. You see your sin, you repent of it. So as we're going through this thing and you saw, yeah, um, lust, that's one of my problems. You'd say, God, I am sorry for my lust. Please forgive me. Help me. I don't want to do this anymore. Or, I'm sorry that I've been hoarding my money instead of giving it away. Or, I'm sorry I've been retaliating when I should forgive. That's where you start. And then you ask for help from God. This comes from Matthew 7, 7, where Jesus says, Ask and you will receive. This is, this is the heart of how we actually live out the sermon. It's, it's asking, it's help, asking for help. We can't do it. We're poor in spirit. We can't do it. So we ask. You begin to ask and pray. You know, God, I've identified this thing in my life. Um, I, I've seen that I blend in with the world too much. I'm just like other non-Christians. Help me to change. You make that your daily prayer. You know, in the Lord's Prayer, there's that part where it says, uh, lead us not into temptation. Get specific. Lead me not into the temptation of blending in with the non-Christians around me, but deliver me from evil. Make that part of your daily routine. You ask God for help. But if you really want to change, don't just ask God for help. Ask another person for help too. Because that's where it gets really real. 
When you show this sheet to somebody else and you say, boy, I was sitting there and here's what the Spirit convicted me about. Wait, don't look. You can look if you want. When other people, when you get a partner, someone enlisted in the battle with you, now it's real. Now you've got accountability. You've got somebody who's praying for you and fighting for you. Someone who can give you some ideas and help you. you ask for help from somebody else. And then you fill yourself with relevant Scripture. So what we have so far, we've got, uh, we've got prayer, we've got fellowship, we've got the Bible, right? told you it's not revolutionary, but you fill yourself with Scripture. Scripture is the sword that the Spirit uses to kill sin. So if you want to defeat a sin, you've got to fill yourself up with Scripture. Arm yourself with it. If you're anxious, if that's your sin, if you're worrying and you can't stop worrying, what you need to do is memorize Matthew 6, 25 through 34. Just soak in it until it becomes a part of your bones. And the Spirit will use that to defeat the sin of anxiety. You know, whatever sin it is, go to that passage in the Sermon on the Mount for starters and just soak in it, memorize it, meditate on it, believe it. And then take action. Do something. Do something. Having repented and prayed and asked for help and read the Bible, do something. <coughs> Excuse me. If you've been convicted that you need to be more generous, you should go home. And before you turn on the football game, you should write a check to a charitable organization that you believe in and put it in the mail. Just do it. If lust is a problem, then when you get home today, you sign up for an internet filtering service that will protect you from the stuff that's out there on your computer. Or call up the cable company and drop them. If you need to love your enemies... Sit down at lunch and make a list of your enemies and then pray for them. If your marriage is on the rocks, if you're considering divorce, look up a marriage counselor and call them and make an appointment for Monday. Do something. And and don't worry too much about doing the exact right thing. Like the old expression goes, it's easier to steer a moving car. Just get going. Do something. Take action. Because the whole point, the whole point of this Sermon on the Mount is that we're supposed to live differently. Not know more stuff. We have not succeeded if we merely understand what Jesus says. We must do it. He wants us to have life. He wants us to have a house with a solid foundation. He wants us on the narrow path that leads to life. He wants good for us. And so he tells us to build on the rock, to walk the narrow road. So use this worksheet if it's helpful. But do something. Join me on this journey, the continual quest to not be morons, but to actually do what Jesus says. Let's pray. Father, you you know this moment right here is just preamble. Everything we've done here is warm-up 
The real game is outside those doors. That's what happens this afternoon and Monday morning and Friday night and everything in between. So Jesus, help us. Help us. We are asking. We are seeking. We are knocking. We are hungering and thirsting for righteousness. We are seeking first the kingdom of God. Lord, as we do that, give us victory over our sin. Help us to build our lives on the firm foundation of Jesus Christ, that when the storm comes, we will not be destroyed. God, help us to win the battle today, to do something in obedience to you. In Jesus' name.